Welcome to First Pitches, where famous founders break down the very first version of their pitch so you can master yours. I'm Lolita Taub, co-founder and general partner at the Community Fund. And I'm Eric Bond, co-founder and general partner at Hustle Fund. Lolita, ready for some real talk with these founders? Sure, let's do it. We'll be right back after a word from our sponsors. Smart companies run on NetSuite by Oracle, the world's number one cloud business system. With NetSuite, you'll have the visibility and control over your financials, HR, inventory, e-commerce, and more. Everything you need, all in one place. You'll have the agility to compete with anyone, work from anywhere, and run your whole company right from your phone. Join over 21,000 companies who trust NetSuite to make it happen. Get your free guide and schedule your free product tour right now at netsuite.com slash first pitches. Berkland is the recognized leader in outsourced CFO, tax, and accounting services for startups at the emerging and growth stages. As a sponsor of First Pitches, Berkland would like to offer listeners a free finance consultation. Berkland also offers important tools on its website, a financial controls matrix, Finance 101 for Startups, Contingency Toolkits, Tax and Marketing Calculators, and other critical resources for scaling a company. Visit berklandassociates.com slash hustle. In today's First Pitches episode, we are excited to speak to Arlen Hamilton of Backstage Capital. You may have seen Arlen before as she skirts the cover of Fast Company as the first black businesswoman on the cover. She's been selected as 40 under 40 on Forbes, is frequently sought after as a keynote speaker in many venues, and is the author of an Amazon bestseller, It's About Damn Time. As the founder of Backstage Capital, she's perhaps the most famous VC among emerging managers. She's also friends with the cast of the daytime soap show, General Hospital. But just five years ago, it was a different story. She was just another underestimated founder. In 2015, Arlen was quickly judged as being an LGBT, black female, non-college educated, having a music industry background instead of an engineering background in tech, and at one point, homeless, sleeping at the San Francisco airport while she raised money. Since then, Arland managed to hustle her way through all these headwinds. She's raised a combined $12 million for Backstage Capital and the Arland Was Here Investments Fund from LPs such as Josh Koppelman and Mark Cuban. Through these vehicles, Arland has invested in over 130 underestimated founders. Arlen, it's an honor to have you here to share your story, and we are so excited to hear your first pitch. Well, thank you very much for having me here. Awesome. Well, uh, we want to start by just getting to know you a little bit better. And, you know, you're a unique guest in that so much has been documented about your life. You know, you've said (laughs) to us before and you've uh, that you're an open book, and that seems to be certainly a case. But what isn't online about you that people should know about? I think it's not one specific thing, but I think it's the understanding that just how much I do in a day when it comes to working with founders and working to build and and maintain backstage the company. I think people don't really understand um, the extent to which I am an operator and a founder uh, rather than what they may read or or see in, in snippets. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that work looks like when you're operating the fund and, you know, what, what's the stuff that's the unsexy things that take your day? Yeah, I, I work on many things all at once. You know, uh, in a given day, I'll have 50 or 60 different topics that I'm working on, um, but they're all, they're all aligned. And so, for instance, today I, I spent, um, I had an hour with, with a founder that I was consulting with. Um, she paid to consult with me and I... I learned about her company from scratch and gave her some advice. And it looks like actually a company that I'd be interested in learning more about as an investor, which is pretty cool when that happens. 
Um, and that took a, that had, I had to look, like figure out as we, as we, all of us investors understand just from scratch, that whole market, the whole idea of it, and just take some bits and pieces of, of what I might know about it in general and kind of get into the headspace of a, of a co-founder at that point since it was so early. And then I spent an hour uh, consulting with one of my LPs and talking through the strategy for what, um, what one of our assets might look like over the next five years and what happens next and kind of doing some personal work on myself and, and as a leader, then went right into another hour uh, that was scheduled with uh, six or seven founders in our portfolio who was um, who were all part of a, a cohort that we're doing some peer mentoring with. And so we're learning from each other and putting forth our most um, there uh, are most pressing asks and including fundraising and, and things that usually take several weeks or months to put together. We're putting that all together in one hour and, and sharing that and just getting a lot done there. Um, also working on strategy for like what, like today we're working on strategy for what a certain asset looks like a separate asset than the one that I talked about earlier today. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know, I'll go on to speak to a few more founders today. I That's what takes up most of the time, which is what I really enjoy. I am also wrapping up my very first million dollar investment. So uh, this week. So I'm putting uh, the final touches on that with the back office. And that's all, you know, that stuff is definitely unsexy. I mean, the number is awesome, but there's a, there you have to, we're dealing with a syndicate and, and for half of it, half of it is coming directly from a fund and from my fund, Arlen was here, and half of it is coming from a syndicate of 101 people. So you have to think about all of their wires, all of their signatures, making sure everybody feels comfortable with the clothes, all documents signed. Uh, and that's just one of several syndicate deals that we have going at once. And because it's like our syndicate itself, Backstage Crowd, is new, um, I'm doing most, I'm doing probably 80% of that work mm-hmm. just, to, just to kind of pilot it and, and figure out what works and what can be automated. You mean so like so, all that back office work? Your, your children? Not doing the back office. No, I, I work with my back office. Oh, but good. a lot of that is, you know, the back office can, um, I, yeah, it would be, it would be, um, self-sabotage <laughs> to do all the back office work. But a lot of it is going it's relationships and it's going one by one with all 101 investors and talking them through it and getting them through and, and then working with the back office to match wires and to match amounts and to mm. make sure everybody is, you know, all caught up. And so it's, um, I think of the back office, a good one is like, you know, Cliff's notes or, you know, something that's like a good, uh, a compliment to what you do, but it's just like with anything legal, you don't just blindly sign things and, and let someone else take over because they went to school for it when it has your name on it. And so because that's my theory and philosophy on things, a lot of things have to kind of go through me in some way or another. Um, but yeah, I think that that happens just all day, every day. And, and I've gotten much better at um, managing, I think I'm, I'm streamlining certain certain activities and certain things to make it a little bit easier to do after nine years. So Arlen, I mean, you do this day in, day out, and you're working on multiple things at once and they're all really awesome. Right. And I think for, for folks like myself and maybe in the audience, we're wondering how does she do it all? Right. Who are (laughs) the people behind? How does it, and, and also not just how do you do it in terms of your team? Is I know you have folks. I I am one of them that yeah. supports you as well, yes, right? I so I know a little. <laughs> I know a little part of it. Yep. But but outside of that, right? There's besides the team that gets the work done. There's a lot of mental work that mm-hmm. you have to do to switch from one thing to another. And I'm just curious to learn about both on the team side. How do you make it work? What have been the efficiencies that you have found? And then on the mental side, in terms of switching, there is overlap, but there is some switching that needs yeah. to happen when mm-hmm. you're thinking about one vehicle versus another or founders versus LPs and so on. The team, the team dynamic is ongoing. I don't think it ever I don't think it ever gets easy and I don't think it ever gets perfected, right? I think the team dynamic, especially the way that I operate, um, is, is, a, is a very sensitive one because you ha- I like, as you know, I like to uh, surround myself with people who in their own right could have their own 
funds and their own brand and their own thing, right? And so, so and one way that is really, I mean, that's the only way I could have it because I like people who have strong opinion and have strong voices and who, even if they're quiet people, um, who have a, a way about them that they want to see the world, right? Because that helps me get better. Mm. At the same time, and I wouldn't change that, I won't change that, but at the same time, you then have to figure out how do you, um, how do you balance what, what my voice is and what my mm-hmm. decisions are and, and what things I can delegate and what things that feel like need to be more collaborative. And I'm such a, um, because of the second part of it, the fact that I do have to think about and strategize so much. I mean, I'm from the moment I wake up from the moment I, I always beat my um, uh, alarm and I wake up thinking about strategy and I, go to sleep thinking about strategy and there's not a moment in any given day that I can turn that off. And I've tried, um, even when I'm watching television or something, I can't turn off calculating or strategy or something. It's like this obsessive thing. But what I've come to understand finally, you know, creeping up on 40, finally figured out that a lot of it has to just have to just be okay with the fact that I can't keep everybody caught up in what I'm thinking. You know, I, I, that's a, it's the way that I am. And it's also the way that I'm choosing to be is I am going to, the buck stops with me. So I'm there for the accolades, sure, whatever, but I'm also there when things go wrong. And so because I am able to really withstand a lot of that, that backlash or that failing, that fear of failing, I'm, I'm, I don't have a fear of failing. It doesn't exist. Um, that then I feel comfortable in saying, you know what, I'm just going to think this through and I will catch everybody up as soon as I can, and, you know, and, and then kind of go in, step into my decisions. Now the, how I do it, <laughs> um, it just sort of happens naturally to me. I don't know how other people think internally. That'd be kind of cool to figure out. I don't know how, if I'm, if it's normal the way that I think, or if it's, well, you do, well, I'd like to ask you because at yeah. one point you did a flow chart for your, your, yeah. your course raising from, from scratch. Yeah. Um, and I love the flow chart. Is that how your brain thinks in a flow chart? If oh, yes. That? You're absolutely right. Absolutely right. I described it today earlier on one of the, the LP calls that I had. It was more like a counseling call for me, really. Huh. Um, I described it as just always being at the fork in the road always being always seeing at least two options so it's absolutely that's probably even more accurate to say that I think in flow charts I'd love to go back actually in time some more because mm-hmm. one of my favorite things about your journey is how you cite that it was your discovery and outreach to a Norwegian pop band <laughs> that got you into your career in the music industry I mean tying this to actually Lily the question you asked about you know, did you have, were you born with this flow chart? Like, was, was there like a, <laughs> a flow chart in mind when you reached out to the Norwegian pop band? Uh, how, tell us a little bit more about uh, what was going on there to, uh, to make you uh, go to that decision to reach out to this yeah, band. Yeah, it was definitely the same. I, I, I've, um, I've just, I've always been exactly like this. That's why it's kind of fun when my, some friends of mine come out from, you know, 15 years ago or 20 years ago and they're just like, Exactly the same, because <laughs> I've always it's always been a little weird. But I was working at a bank doing ten, it, not even as a teller. That would have been more exciting. But I was doing ten key by touch data entry, so just one hand typing, and I got really good at it. I became like the fastest typer or second fastest typer there. And and you were in I was encoding checks, so I'd put a drop a check for a million dollars into the machine. By the time it reached my right hand, I'd have to type in the amount and it would be a very off number. And I had to do that for like a thousand checks a day. Wow. It it all had to add up at the end because it was being encoded and the encoding was what was going to actually go to the bank and be cashed and get counted. So that was like, it was interesting to me because I love numbers and I love math, but it was so mundane (laughs) because it was just, it was like a robot, you know, a robot should have done it. And I was listening to music to try to keep myself awake, to keep myself like spirit high. Came across this song where this band, pop punk band, I didn't even know what they were called, like that that was a genre. And they were singing a song. It was a really cute indie, you could tell it was like an indie production. 
And this would have been 19 years ago, right? But they're singing a song about the artist Pink. And as much as I talk about Janet Jackson, I really, I mean, Pink is almost up there with with her. And and like, I love Pink. And so I thought the song was cute. And I was just like, who are these guys? This is weird. This wouldn't be ever play on radio. Yeah, here. what was this band? They're I, called I, Golden Boy with a lowercase g. Golden they Boy. still exist, actually. They just put out a new um, EP, but they they kind of exist like, like years between albums you know it's like they're all teachers or some sort of one of the drummer has become a like an inter, like an international running star <laughs> and uh. he used to be like he and I were like the pudgy people on the tour and he was this drummer who just <laughs> drank a lot of Red Bull and it was like yeah let's go you know and he just picked up running one day like Forrest Gump and just stop, never stopped running <laughs> and he's just been doing distance running he has like the Guinness world record now for being on a treadmill for the most hours. It's ridiculous. Oh like his whole life has changed. Uh, but everyone else too, like they are married and they have kids now and all these things, but they put out an album every once in a while. And they have a song that, that uh, mentions me in it now talking about, what? yeah, oh, like they're, maybe we can get it and add it to the yeah, interview. Yeah. Cause it's, I put the lyrics in the book and, or some of the lyrics in the book. And it's basically, it, the song is called Old and Boring, which thank you. Um, <laughs> but they're talking about themselves. What a troll. <laughs> they're talking about, they're like, gee, I just listen to it. No, they're talking about themselves. We've kept up with each other. I've, I've been to Norway now three times, two or three times in those 20 years and met their families and had Christmas dinners with them and things like that. Um, but we've kept in touch, but we haven't, you know, we don't know everything about each other but this old and boring is talking about them so they're like you know we used to be these little rockers out in the on, in the u.s and now we're just like the kids are asleep and i'm playing on my guitar and then they just mention like the last time i saw you was uh was in the wall street journal or something like that you know and and it's just a um it's a nice it's nice it's really nice to still have that friendship but yeah i saw that Saw their music, heard their music, thought they were cute. Like, thought the music was cute. I certainly didn't think they were cute because that wasn't just, that's not how I flow. But <laughs> the music was cute. <laughs> like, I said, well, I, I'd love to see them play live. So I got in touch with them on like AOL or some, some, some sort of thing that was 20 years ago, 19 years ago. And I just offered to, to build a tour for them. My thinking back then was... Um, well, somebody has built a tour before, so it can be done. And I don't know what how to build a tour or, or like put together a tour. I don't know anything about it. And there wasn't like I could just go on and Google it, Google the directions. But I I just thought if it's been done before, then I definitely can do it. And if it hasn't been done before, let's figure out like how we hack that. And so I just spent a couple of months teaching myself how to do that. And so it, it's it's it follows the storyline of when you share your story of how you became a VC yeah. in terms of learning, just wanting to do it and just doing it. So this show is called First Pitches. Okay. And the reason why we call it First Pitches is we're really excited to see origin stories here. You know, when we were doing the research on you um, in terms of the, the things that you've overcome, uh, we were really struck by the year 2014. So, you know, you're coming out of a year of um, building a successful reputation, managing the tours for like CeeLo Green and Kirk Franklin. and I won't say managing because the managers will kill me. The <laughs> production coordinator and road Production managers. coordinator, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, um, these different things. And, uh, and then you, you decide, I think at that point, it sounds like, to make a real swerve into focusing on your career in tech. Hmm. Um, you know, we're we would love to hear a little bit more about what the context of that year was like for you and taking yeah. a big risk. And your mom was there too, I'm sure supporting yeah. you along the way, despite all the healthcare risks in the near term and, and other things. Um, yeah. I mean, it was, it was really 2011 through 14 and 14 mm. was when like 2011 was when I started really dabbling and thinking it through and figuring out the vision for what it could be uh, through a lot of trial and error. Yeah. By 2014, I had no one investing in this in the fund, but I I knew that I also it was like one of those forks in the road moments. So I knew at 2000 in 2014 I needed to make a very distinct decision because I couldn't have a foot in each in each um, pl- place and get, and do one very well. 
that's just how I thought about it. I mean, I can do a lot and I probably could have pulled it off, but it wouldn't be up to the standard that I was thinking. And I wanted to, I wanted to at least say, you know, if the, if the fun wasn't going to work out, I wanted to at least say, well, I gave it all I I had. Cause if I said, well, I tried and it was a side thing that I thought about and I did a few emails and I kept getting rejected, but I never went out there and was just in it. Hmm. And I would never be able to know what it could have been. And so 2014 is when I made the decision in the parking lot of a hotel to go all in on the fund. Uh, Lolita, I don't know about you, but I'm really curious to see what this first pitch was like. Yeah, I, I definitely want to hear about it. And if you have something to share, also see it too. What I was pitching, the very first thing I pitched, mm-hmm. probably 2011 or 12 was a $1 million fund that would go solely into LGBTQ founded companies. And it would be something like 10 to 12 companies. And um, that was just very specific. You know, it was like, I, I mean, it, it didn't last long, that, that idea, because I started thinking, man, I'm meeting so many amazing founders who are of color. I'm meeting so many women across the board. And, and so it did expand to what we are today. But that very first thing was, if I can put together a million for LGBTQ founders, there'd be nothing like it. It'd be nothing like it in the world. There was probably a, you know, an angel group here or there, mm-hmm. but it would just be something different. And it would be like, the idea was originally I would have um, like um, vertical, vertical funds. And I didn't, you know, it went from that, it swayed up to like, I'm going to raise $50 million. (laughs) It just kind of went back and forth. But that very first one, and then the very first, um, I didn't have a deck until 2015. Wow. Oh, wow. So it was all, it was all verbal pitches. All verbal, all emails. Some of the emails were the longest. Like I talked to Brad Feld recently and I'm like, how, why did you write back to me? Why did you write? I was just so long-winded. Uh, but that's what I try to help people with today is is learning how to to get their point across. Well, And you're an incredible writer. I mean, and you're very succinct and you get to the point and you're not wasting anybody's time. Um, but you're talking about, and, and I've heard you mention this before, that when you first got started, you would write essays to people. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us a little bit about one of these email pitches and, and maybe did you get feedback about it at the beginning? Yeah. And that's, and I guess with regard to those email pitches too, just like, what did you feel like you had to highlight? <laughs> everything. <laughs> I thought back then I had to tell people everything because if only they knew, if only they knew what I had uh, made it through and what I had accomplished and where, how I grew up and everything. Um, the funny thing is I never, ever got feedback that the emails were too long. People didn't have that generosity of spirit to, to, or didn't dare to say that. Do you think think they were thinking that though? And they just didn't want Some of them had to have been. Okay. Because I'm in the position of a lot of the people that I wrote today. And I know that it's impossible. There's no way. They would have been like, "Oh, that's cool! Like, I'm glad you wrote the the, the national, you know, the Gettysburg Address, which I think is pretty short. But I'm glad you wrote all of this, like the 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 Iliad, for me to read on a Wednesday afternoon, you know. And so I no, I I think probably people on the other end, most of them, I but I, what I did understand is that most of them were not going to even see it or read it. So I did know that. I think what I was thinking was like. For the ones who do open this and for the ones who do care based on the title or the uh, you know, first few words, I then want to, I want to hook them and then I want to just like, it just, it's over. They, I'm undeniable at this point. Do you have the and hook? Do you still remember that initial hook that just seemed to work? For this, um, nothing worked. No, nothing worked for four years. <laughs> I, don't think, I don't remember anything that used to work. <laughs> Because nothing worked. Oh, something really, worked with Susan Kimberlin. Right? It was four years later when I realized, like I said, every single conversation is is a learning experience. So four years of learning how to take the Iliad and turn it into <laughs> uh, a tweet. 
Yeah. That's well, what it was. We're obsessed by this story about uh, Susan Kimberlin, this uh, Salesforce and PayPal executive yes. who famously became your, your first LP. So um, do you have any memories from what that pitch was like? Like, where, where did you meet her? And- yeah, the very first pitch to her, I met her in, it was a two-week, the boot camp that 500 Startups does at Stanford. I was in their pilot cohort. Oh, wow. Um, that's a whole story in itself about how I got there. But I got there, I had one meal a day. Uh, nobody knew that I was completely broke. I was staying in an Airbnb that I ran out of money paying to pay for. And... Uh, I met Susan there. It was like everybody in that in that class, I think maybe one other person didn't have like personal wealth, but everybody had either personal wealth, like they mm-hmm. were family, they're representing a family office or or they were, you know, running a, a corporate arm of a VC, a, a corporate VC arm or something where they had access. We did a, mm-hmm. a, a compiled at the end of it, write down on a piece of paper, how much money you have under management in one way or the other. And it was in the billions when you compile these 30 people together. And I wrote, you know, let's see, $12 in my bank account. But I think that's going to go to six when I get on the train. <laughs> you know, it was very, I was like, I'm not even going to turn this in. Um, but Susan was in that class. And I remember seeing her, you know, we would talk about what we were working on. At the time, it was, most people were just like, huh, okay, that's nice. That's sweet. <laughs> that's cute. But Susan was working, what she wanted to originally do was she had left the companies, she had made a good living for herself and great, you know, nest egg. And she wanted to do an accelerator that was uh, an impact accelerator. And I just thought that is so cool. And maybe out of everybody, maybe Susan didn't have, you know, much experience investing or anything like that. She was in the room really to learn. And so I probably could have gone to other people who had more access to capital or, you know, more, more access to other people who can invest. But when I saw, I I still remember like very vividly hearing her talk passionately about this impact accelerator idea that I thought was so interesting. Mm. She ultimately was talked out of it. And I think she agrees, but she was talked out of it just because it would just be such a huge undertaking the way that she wanted to do it. And she wasn't quite ready for that. And so because I knew she was interested in impact, I pulled her to the side on one of our little field trips one day and I was like, you know what? <laughs> you like impact. You, you've heard what I'm up to. Um, and she was like, well, don't you need like a couple million dollars to get that started? And I was like, actually, 25K would write the first check. Another 25K would put me in business. And I would go from nothing to gone because I'd been working on this for four years. And we sat down and most of it was not so much convincing her of the thesis because she was already on board for that. It was convincing her that I could pull it off. I didn't have a personal bank account. I didn't have a place to go after this two weeks. She didn't know that part, but she understood I didn't have a personal bank account. I didn't have any connections in Silicon Valley. Maybe, you know, people I talked to, but they were, we weren't friends. These were people who like knew of me just like anybody else would know of me on online. And she just had to understand like, most people would stop at that. <laughs> she, you know, her thing was like, most people would stop at, you don't have this, that, the other. How on earth are you going to get to where you want to go with nothing? And when I started, I think what helped was that I started helping her uh, do diligence on other companies that she was looking at doing direct investments in, just kind of casually. And helping her with different answer certain questions and make her feel more comfortable and more confident and speaking about because she has like product down pat, obviously, from her background. But there are certain soft skills that I could bring to the table. And I think that was what helped her. And then it then we went away for like two or three months and I, I wasn't getting anywhere with anybody and I was just getting really, really dire. And so I was like, okay pick up the phone or email. I can't remember which one. And I was like, Susan, if I can walk into, and it's funny because it was AngelList. I don't really say this, but it was AngelList. I said, if I could walk into AngelList and get and strike a deal with them, this is 2015, to like prop up and promote my first fund on their platform, will you be my first backer? And she's like, if you can literally walk into AngelList and have them do something special for you, you have my you have my check. 
Wow. So I got a meeting with AngelList. At the time, uh, someone who worked there um, didn't quite believe that I what I wanted to do was possible, but was very interested in the fact that uh, kind of the headline of it, and so agreed. And I took that to Susan, and she said, give me 24 hours, and 24 hours she told me she was in. And I had scraped together just enough money from my aunt, my mom, um, you know, this this card and that card to put together that last night of a hotel that I stayed in the night before. And then I was just sitting in a parking lot with my luggage. And I was just going to figure out again, what am I going to do today? How am I going to figure this wow. out? And she said, I'm in. And so I took my luggage. I did a little turn, like a Michael Jackson turn. <laughs> I did a little woo. And then I was like, okay, what do we, because this was in Mountain View. I was in Mountain View. So I was like, okay, what do I do now? All right. So we got the thing. We got this, you know, the wire, this, that, and the other. Okay. I'm going to book a flight to Los Angeles. I'm going to build up in Los Angeles. And I went to, I flew to Los Angeles like the next day. I got a WeWork like pass that you get when you just, you don't have an office, but you can just be there. I was able to print stuff. I was so stoked. I was able to print I could have people come over and have meetings with me in the little conference rooms. I was really bullish on WeWork early on. I just called up a couple of the people I had been talking to forever, one of them being Brian Brackeen. And I said, hey, I'm in business and I wanted to invest in you for two years. Let's do it. That was actually the investment that was so interesting to me that when we were talking about Backstage... I was like, I definitely want to join Backstage. Yeah. Um, but I am, I'm actually so grateful for this 500 startup VC Unlock program because that's actually where you met Pocket and Elizabeth and they introduced you to me and then we were kind of connected. Look at that. Yeah. And that was, so that was the start. I know that you got your start there, but we got our start there too. And yeah, I'm so for, forever grateful for that. I have another question. I have another question that they came from Twitter as well. And this is from Parole. And she asked a really good question in my, in my book. She said, um, and it's all about storytelling because you are a killer storyteller. And Uh every time, every time (laughs) I listen to you, I'm like at the edge of my seat waiting for that next thing to hear, Mm -hmm. even though I've heard parts of the story, which is amazing. (laughs) So, um, but Parole asks, given your experience in telling stories effectively, uh, what advice would you give founders so they, they're better at telling their stories? Hmm. Um, ooh, I mean, that's a good one. It's probably an entire book could be written on that. Probably is. Or a um, course. I guess the first, the first steps, yeah, definitely. I think it's the first steps really around, or the first, like the main sentiment is really around uh, everybody has a story. Like everybody has something that is interesting to somebody else. It doesn't matter how mundane you think your story is. And even, you know, the the inclination that a lot of people with privilege will have to say, well, I have privilege, so I don't have anything interesting to say. Like I get that like overcompensation a lot from people who do have privilege. And I'm like, well, first of all, we all have privilege. But second of all, if you mean you have privilege because of race or gender, you most likely still have something really interesting to share with the world. So I think all of us can think about it, think about um, kind of take ourselves through different highlights and lowlights of our, of our lives and probably pull out some sort of learnings from that that we don't even um, expect. And I think it's really important, like on the same thread, it's like important to be super authentic and not embellish too much. And like with my story, to be quite honest with you, as much as I have shared publicly over and over again, or has been shared about me that taken from other things I've said, there are still things that I keep very, very close uh, to the vest. And there are things that I have even downplayed, even if they were worse than they were. Because I, you always sort of want to be, you always want to sort of be confident because you don't own your story. Hmm. You own what you know about it. You own what the truth is. But once you tell your story, anybody has at it and anybody can reshape it. Anybody can retell it the way uh, that they want to. Even when we think about parables and things like that, everything has been changed a little bit at a time throughout centuries. And so 
I feel I, it's not exactly a formed thought because I'm, I'm just thinking about this now, but it feels like one major thing would be to to be very, very protective of what you do put out into the world. Be authentic in what you put out, but also be protective and understand that it's going to have a life of its own. Even if you don't get a lot of press or things like that, somebody's going to say something. So you know, being intentional about what you want to sort of like a bird, like what do you, where do you want that to go once it's out of your hands? Mm-hmm. What, what do you, what effect do you want it to have on people? Is there a point though where, you know, the way that things are going, I wouldn't be surprised in another five years or 10 years, you're sitting on a hundred million dollars of capital <laughs> that's personally yours, oh, yeah. your own Ireland family yeah. office. And is yeah. there a point though where it's just enough, let's call it even like FU money or FU kind of to the level of career that you've been able to achieve or you could just share that stuff because it doesn't matter what the consequences are. Have you, have no, you it's not that? about, it's not about consequences. It's about, um, it's like self-care. It's about your, it's like, for instance, a couple of August ago, so two years ago, um, right before Fast Company, but still people were like, they knew every move I was making and they knew where I was going everywhere. Uh, my wife and I, who at the time, she was my fiance, maybe she wasn't even my fiance yet. I don't think she was my fiance yet. Maybe she was, I can't remember. But um, we went and we stayed at this place in Berlin for like three weeks and we didn't put a post up. We didn't say anything about where we were. We didn't put a picture up. We didn't do anything. It didn't even say that maybe I was in Berlin, maybe a couple of friends knew. And it was just so special. And it was just for us. And it was just Mm -hmm. not, you know, picture didn't happen. You know, it was just for us. And that was an, that was okay. And so this isn't exactly the same thing. I, I'm not saying keep things from people, hide things. I'm saying be very intentional with what gets to be yours mm-hmm. and what gets to be shared. Because again, you were talking about a business too. And you are your business in a lot of ways. Like if Lolita, you started a company or you started a fund, which I very much so believe you should, and I'll be your first LP if you do. Plus one. <laughs> um, <laughs> you you're going to absolutely be the face and brand of this and all the things you've done for founders is going to just shine through and your story your origin story as you all call it or refer to it is going to be so inspirational to so many people but you know that there are certain things that you know I only want my family to know this couple things because it's ours it's like that gift to myself of holding on to that because it does not have to belong to the world yeah, I, I really actually appreciate that because my mom, for example, has been really sensitive about things that I do share and I don't share about her family. Yeah. And I think it comes back to respect and dignity for others that that may be impacted by sharing mm-hmm. our stories. Mm-hmm. That could be really inspirational, but others can actually tort them into something that's not pleasant. That's um, right. That's so right. I, I, I can really appreciate that. Uh, thank you for sharing that and, and such wise yeah. wise advice that I will keep in my brain. And I'll say this real, real quick takeaway, just for the business owners out there. Always remember, no matter what, until the, until the day they are not, journalists are not your friend. They are, they are co-workers, right? They are doing a job and they are going to do that job for that company that they work for. They're not your buddy. Now, if they leave, they become your buddy. They're good people, all of that. Love journalists, even when they're talking smack about me. Love them. But th- that's a lesson I learned, too, wow. early on, is that they're not your buddy. I'm going to remember that one, too, because they do, pr- they do act like buddies, don't they? That's their job. That's their job. And I, again, I say this with all the respect, and, and I, I will be the, the first person to make sure that journalists keep their jobs because I think they're so important. I think press is so important. I have a question for you, Arlen, and, and this is actually one of the, the questions that was thrown out on Twitter that I really okay. liked and I thought was really good. And this one's by Bomani Mintz, and he asks, what's one thing that used to keep you up at night um, back in the day and no longer does? Um, and, and how did you overcome that? Honestly, what used to keep me up, uh, was the inability to get, um, major healthcare for my mother. Mm. And now that 
because we didn't have insurance during a very long time period of time. And she was, I lived with her for a long time, like different situations. Some were normal, like having a home together and some were not normal, like bouncing around from person to person or other. And she would have these different things that would happen or she would be sick in some way. And we knew that if we went, because we'd done this before, we knew that if we went to the emergency room, that was important to do. It's important to take care of yourself that way. But a lot of times um, they would they would do what they could in that moment because emergency rooms are built for emergencies. <laughs> so they would do what they could in that moment and then say, go see your primary doctor, which we didn't have. And then there were these, mm-hmm. and that became where she would just refuse. I'm not going to go see an urgent care because I know that that whole game, I'm not going to see somebody brand new. And so that was just like torture to watch someone in, in pain like that and not be able to do anything about it. So now it's not like I can fix, it's not like I can change the fact that she gets sick or that I get sick, but just knowing, like when I pulled out my insurance card just a couple of weeks ago for myself to get a test, I was just like, this yeah. is so good. I, it was just a beautiful moment that I think a lot mm. of people might not understand how, I, how that feels. I totally get you, Arlen. And I, I, I think that we might've even had this conversation yep. because for my mom as well, I've had this similar issue and it's, it's definitely one of those things that keeps you up at night because you want them to have good health care, and then you don't have the access to it. And if you're not healthy, then you know what else do you have? And um, but and and your mom is amazing. I'm I'm an Arlen mom fan, by the way, Eric. Oh, I, I think the feeling is mutual. Yeah, she is such she's such a badass, and she was she was teaching me how to hustle. Like she was, and she's so cool. We were at South by. Yeah, I still um, don't know that conversation. I just know that there was like you were she in a was, corner at a, at a house party and y'all were talking. I'm like, wait a second, what are they up to? <laughs> so, so, so the story goes like there were a lot of really cool people in this, this, this party and Arlen's mom and I were just kind of sitting in a corner and I'm like, yeah, look, these, all these people are so cool. And, and Arlen's mom's just like, you know, you just pretend, just, just tell them, yeah, you're the badass and you know about everything and let let them tell you about this stuff. And she's giving me all these tips about how to really hustle. And yeah. I'm just like, I love Arlen's mom. And it by sounds the way, like you both like, took it to heart too. I mean, uh, <laughs> yeah, what we do. I am taking Arlen. Yes, Arlen, Arlen, Arlen's mom's words stuck in my head. They, I do definitely try to do what she told me. Um, but on that note, I actually saw a tweet not too long ago that you got her this amazing gift that's mm. way beyond just health insurance. Mm-hmm. Like, how does that feel to be able to go from being worried at night about um, does my mom have health insurance? Do I have it to getting her? And I, I don't want to give it away, but you mm-hmm. gave her like this amazing present. I just couldn't help. And I know so many people were also really happy because it was just, it's such an awesome thing that to, to be able to, to give yeah. um, not the object, but the, the, the symbolism of, the symbolism of where of you've it. reached. Yes. Yeah. I got my mom a car. I don't have a car, <laughs> but I, I got my mom a car and it was a it was a major deal for us just because um uh, not only was it just the first time I was able to get her a car that was really special and it was one of the cars she's talked about you know wanting for several years like the type of car I think I remember seeing this it's a pretty yeah. sweet Benz right yeah <laughs> yeah I was trying to avoid saying what it was but we'll uh, see it for you because you know people out there in Dallas trying to but it. it <laughs> It was more symbolic in that she had been just so like demoralized by being quarantined and she mm. felt, you know, my brother would just bring her food and, and to the door and then take her trash out. And she was just stuck in this little box, you know, even though it was shelter, we'll, we'll take it, you know, it was a wonderful apartment she has in Dallas, but to, for her to be able to just jump in this car Even she was just like, I'm just going to go drive and drive like around the block and I'll feel good, you know, like just have that freedom. That was really cool. And we didn't want to do like a rental because it was like just worried about, you know, just infection and she's in her 70s. And it was just it was just like it it meant so many things at once. And in the in the book uh, I talk about in my book, It's About Damn Time, I have a whole section chapter section about uh many of the times where my mother was with me during some of these really tough times and um, 
you know, it's one thing to be by yourself in your twenties, your thirties, and just, you know, where am I going to, where am I going to stay tonight? You know, and it's another to just know that your mother in your sixties and seventies has the same issue. And, mm. you know, th- there's a lot of that. And I, I go into and go in depth in the book because I, I don't feel any shame from that time, time period. I feel very, a great honor. I feel great pride that we survived and that we thrived and, we were pretty low key. I know besides the, that gift and besides maybe my home, we don't do anything lavish for ourselves. We do a lot of, like I stay pretty close to the bone when it comes to liquid assets. I do a lot of personal investing and I do a lot of uh, phil- uh, philanthropy now. And both are really important to me to feed the other. So um, it's not like we're riding around balling all the time. (laughs) And I, and I love, I mean, so I read, I I think I pre-ordered your book. It's about damn time. The first day you tweeted about it and, and I listened to it. I literally got the, I I got it on audible and I listened to it the second it came out. Oh, cool. And, and I thought it was just so wonderful, Arlen, that you really take us back all the way from where you started what it was like, and you're super vulnerable in terms of um, what what your situation was, and really honest about what happened and how you struggled, but then also how you kept your chin up and kept going mm-hmm. and kept hustling. And I, I just have to say the book was amazing, um, and I recommend it all the time because it is a story of heroes, right? It's, it's a story of it, there are challenges in life, and you go and address them and you face them. And sometimes you have to um, face, face some big challenges that may be scary at first, but you kind of went through it. And, you, and, and what I loved about the book was also that you encourage others to, to reflect and to see into themselves and think about, you know, even though we may be going through something difficult, there is, there is that optionality in how we're looking at things what opportunities we're able to identify and then go on. And mm-hmm. I just want to personally thank you for sharing your story and sharing so much of your, your journey and your book because it's it's amazing. Thank you for saying so. I appreciate it. I think we uh, are coming up close to our yes. hour here. It went so quickly, Arlen. It did. But we wanted to leave you with this last word. So uh, Lolita actually pulled up these tweets and they're from August 3rd that I wanted to read to you and uh, would love to get your response on this. So the first tweet said... This week marks a special milestone. I'm investing $1 million into a single company via the BackstageCrowd.com syndicate. High five to 101 members who invested into this deal, and Arlen was here investments. 2014, total income was less than $10,000. 2016, first fund of $1.2 million. 2020, first $1 million investment. And merging this with the part of the second mm-hmm. tweet, zero to 140 plus pre-seed investments, $12 million plus of assets under management, 7,000 companies impacted in less than five years of a 15-year plan. So we're five years into this, less than five years into your 15-year plan. What's the rest of the decade look like for you? (laughs) Well, it will play out. Um, I don't know that I'll share all of it here, but I do. It's just, you're going to see more of the same from me. I'm very consistent. If you were talking to me seven years ago, you would have heard the same thing from me five years ago, the same thing. I want to get capital and resource or the resources into the hands of underrepresented, underestimated founders until I'm obsolete and no longer needed. That's what I'll be doing in many, many ways. Um, all the, all the plays that I have, all the things you see me do, the book, the courses, even stuff that's going to come out, you know, next year, things like that. All of it is in, is aligned towards that goal and to catalyze people for the rest of my life. Now that's that's a lifelong goal. But I do think that you'll see, just like with a lot of funds, with most people who are paying attention understand, which you both completely understand, is like the bet these pre-seed bets we're making. And the pre-seed, even the even the earliest investments, you know, five years ago, um, some of these deals we'll start to see in the next year to really have something, you know, an exit or this or that or the other. But a lot of them, including like the most powerful ones, the ones that have the most uh, impactful exits will be another five to 10 years. Mm-hmm. 
And I look at things in decades. I look at things in, in just the longest view. And um, so I, I just know that there's so much of this story that will unfold over the next 10 years. And I didn't go, I didn't go into this at any point with all that I had up against me. I didn't say, well, I hope I have a good flip and make a million dollars, make millions of dollars in the first two years. That is impossible. And it was um, just really short-sighted. And I've never, ever felt that way, even when I didn't have any money. So what I feel is when you said the hundred million in five or 10 years, I'm like, yeah, that's, that's like, of course that's going to happen. That's not a, that's, course that's going to happen I don't know if that'll be under management or be personal capital but one of the two for sure and um in, I think you were like you were asking about FU money there's not an amount of money that will have me stop working I'm going to be doing this work for a very long time and the impact of it some of it I'll see some of it I won't and I'm good with that too well, we're going to be right there with you. And you know that I'm here for anything because not only are you doing the right thing as a businesswoman, just as a human being, you're just so genuine and authentic. And thank you, um, thank you for inspiring us. Thank you for taking the time today. Uh, and thank you for changing the world. You really have changed so many of our worlds in our minds and inspired us to do bigger and better things. And it couldn't happen without you, Arlen. So thank you thank for you. all that you that. do. Thanks so much. All right. Uh, Arlen, it was a real privilege. Thank you so much. Arlen Hamilton, founder of Backstage Capital. Check out backstagecrowd.com. And of course, buy our book, It's About Damn Time. Uh, thanks again. Hopefully we can talk again like this again soon. Let's do it. Thank you for listening to First Pitches. For show notes and more, visit our website, firstpitches.com, where you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts and never miss an episode. First Pitches is produced and edited by Hung Pham. If you enjoyed this episode, we'd love for you to rate our show and leave us a review. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you soon. I'd like to introduce you to a team that every founder should know about. It's GS Futures. GS Futures is a new multi-stage VC fund that launched just this year, investing into teams at early seed all the way through Series D. This team spun off from the GS Group in Korea, a legendary enterprise representing assets in retail, consumer, energy, and much more. GS Futures is actively seeking and investing into great hustlers. Go to their website right now, gsfutures.vc, and tell them what you're up to. I think you'll be excited to partner with them. Frank Rimmerman is a public accounting firm whose history is closely intertwined with that of Silicon Valley. With humble beginnings similar to so many startups, Frank Rimmerman was formed with a desire to serve the entrepreneurial and venture communities of the Valley, supporting those who think outside the box. This is what the Frank Rimmerman team told us at first pitches. Even we agree accounting work can be boring. That's why we chose to work with some of the most innovative and creative people, people who are changing the world around us every day. Their excitement fuels our passion and determination to grow and serve this special community. Frank Rimmerman is the entrepreneurial CPA firm. Check them out at frankrimmerman.com slash startup services.